Father, thank you for this gift of grace of your word. Father, you didn't have to reveal yourself to us. You did as a gracious gift. You've shown yourself clearly powerful and mighty and wise in creation. All that you have made declares your glory. From plant life to aquatic life to the stars and planets to our circulatory system, Father, all things point to your glory. But yet, Father, we need you to reveal yourself to us specifically, and you have in your word. Father, you've shown us what pleases you, what displeases you. You've shown us that we are in trouble without the work of another, namely Jesus. And though you've spoken through your prophets and through your word, you've spoken most clearly through your son, Jesus Christ, who is the exact image of you, Father. We thank you that Jesus did not consider equality with you a thing to hold on to, but he humbled himself and took the form of a servant, a human being, and was obedient to you, Father, even to death, death on a cross. And for this reason, you have highly exalted him, high above every name that is named, and at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord, Yahweh, to the glory of the Father. So, Father, we now ask that you would help us in these moments of wrestling with your revealed will. We are not to grumble. We are not to complain about our lives in the place that you've put us. We need your help. Murmuring, complaining comes so easy and naturally. Rejoicing and being thankful comes supernaturally. So we need your help. Give us understanding. Give us gripping attention. And give us the power to live out and do your word and not just be hearers of it. We ask this all in Christ's name. Everyone said, amen. All right, we're going to be in Philippians once again, and we're going to be in 2, 14 to 18. 2, 14 to 18. I'm going to read the whole section of Scripture, and then we'll jump right in. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Now, we always take a text in its context, okay? And when we're doing Bible study, we always want to study the text in the larger context of the 66 books of the Bible, but specifically in the verses that just came before and the verses that follow. This comes on the heels of our message from last week, 12 and 13. And the beginning of 12 picks up therefore, which points back to what came before it, okay? And so what we have in this continuation of argument from the Apostle Paul is that Jesus Christ, in humility, did not consider equality with God a thing to hold on to, but rather he humbled himself. And the reason that Paul brings Jesus' humiliation and humbleness into the picture as, is as an example for us because prior to that text, he said, consider others more important than yourself. 
In other words, you be selfless. And you think about the needs of others as more important than your needs, just like Jesus did. He did not count equality with God a thing to hold on to. Rather, he gave it up for our benefit. He was looking after our best interest, not his own. And God, as a result, lifted him as high as possible. The exaltation of Jesus because of his humility. And you remember last week from 1 Peter 5 that if we will be active in humbling ourselves under the mighty hand of God, he will lift us up as well in due time. Whose time? God's time. So let's remember this, that we must actively participate in the sanctification process. Sanctification, for those of you who don't know, means growing more and more in our discipleship, growing more and more to look like Jesus, his quality and his morality, his attitude, okay? We are to grow, and part of our growth will be selfless humility, and we must act. Remember, Peter said, humble yourself. You do this. And remember, Jesus did it for you, and as a response to what Jesus did for you, you too humble yourself. Now, we get encouragement because in 12 and 13, remember from last week, we learned that it's God who is working in us, both to will, that means to choose, and to act, that means to do, according to his good pleasure. Okay, that was last week. So the encouragement is, listen, when you act, when you humble yourself, when you move to love and you move to forgive and you move to obey, God is working in you. That's the promise. He works in you the desire to do his will and to follow his word, but he also works in you the power to accomplish it. The desire to do it, which makes the choosing of it, and the power to do it. Now, we have this text. Part of, part of living and doing the will of God is this, friends. We need to do all things, unqualified all things, without grumbling or disputing. Okay, so part of what God wants us to do is to do an unqualified all things. Okay, now this is to the Philippians. Now you remember the context. I've said this almost every week, and I'll say it again. There is a dispute brewing in the church at Philippi between Iodia and Syntyche in chapter 4, and Paul says, have them, you know, agree in the Lord. They have worked with me for the sake of the gospel, and side by side, they stri strived with me. So please, have them agree in the Lord, okay? And this text is saying, whatever you find in your life, Philippian church, which is persecution from the citizens of Philippi and probably from the authorities in Philippi, and as rumors, factions disagreements, fractures show up in the church life and body, you need to work it out, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Part of working it out is doing all things without grumbling or disputing. Now remember from last week, the working out is the second sense of salvation. It's working out salvation from the sins in your life currently killing you. Salvation from the penalty of sin, hell, the wrath of God, is taken care of by Jesus, and we do no work to, to get that gift. We simply receive. John chapter 1, to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. 
So this is working out our salvation from current sin. What's the current sin? It's grumbling and disputing. Now what I'm going to do is I'm going to take about a half hour, maybe 35 minutes on verse 14 there. And then in the last five, I'm going to go 15 through 18. Because 15 through 18 is application of verse 14. Okay? So let's, don't, don't be afraid if you're like, whoa, he's still in the first verse here in this section when it's like, you know, five minutes before we got to take communion. Okay, it's purposeful. Now, here's the deal. This Greek word grumbling means this. Murmur, mutter, complain. Murmur, mutter, complain. And normally, it's with a low tone to it. So, so you, you've, you've been in arguments. You know, you, you've even heard, you know, people in crowds bump up against the, someone else and, what's your problem, man? And then they walk away just, rah, 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 rah. Or, or, or your wife or your husband, you're in an argument and they walk away from you and, and, rah, 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 rah. and it's this, you could tell, oh, what are you saying, right? And, and it's so low, you can barely make it out, but it's, it's a complaining, it's a murmuring, okay? This is what we should not be doing. And here's why. I'm going to show you this from all kinds of texts in the Bible. Our complaining, our grumbling is ultimately and always against God. And God takes complaining and murmuring oh so serious. And as I said earlier, I was convicted beyond conviction preparing this message. Because I know from the text I'm about to show you, I deserve to die. And that's where we're going. You ready? (laughs) Let's go. So Paul understands his Old Testament well. Probably has the first five books of the Bible memorized. We learn this from the next chapter, Philippians 3, 1 to about 11. Okay? He, he's a Pharisee of Pharisees. According to legalistic righteousness, according to the law, faultless he saw himself. So no doubt he was very familiar with the Exodus story, which is recounted also in Numbers and portions of Deuteronomy. And so we know that one of the main sins of the Israelites upon leaving Egypt to go through the wilderness to acquire possession of the promised land was they grumbled and complained constantly and God struck them dead over and over again. For what? For complaining. That's how serious God takes it. Now let's just look at a few texts that I think are in Paul's mind here. It says Exodus 16, 1 to 3. Now, I, I could have spent hours finding text through the first five books of the Bible about this. So I just grabbed a few for you guys, okay? Very limited amount of, of examples here. They set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai. On the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. So look, 15th day Second month, two months in, 15 days out from leaving Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. Okay, there's, there it is. So we're only two months out. God miraculously parted the Red Sea. He miraculously enabled them to plunder the Egyptians and get all kind of gold and clothing and wealth. And he has taken care of them in wildly miraculous ways. And they begin to grumble against who? Look, against Moses and Aaron. Now, you know Moses and Aaron are brothers. Moses is the lead, if you will, of the children of Israel. And the brother is eventually going to be the priest. And they are the leaders. So they're grumbling against the leadership. 
And the people of Israel said to them, this is what the grumbling looked like. Would that we have died in the, I'm sorry, would we have died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt? When we, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. So they're hungry. And they're like, we would have rather died in Egypt than been out here in this God-forsaken wilderness. At least there was something to eat in Egypt. Okay, now, now we're just going to skip some verses down to verse 8. And Moses said, when the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling that you grumble against him, him. What are we, now Moses is speaking, he's speaking about himself and Aaron. What are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. But notice, in 1 through 3, the grumbling is not directly pointed at God, is it? No, it's pointed at Moses and Aaron, and God interprets that as, I put you in this situation. You're here by my hand, and when you complain, you're complaining against me. Okay, now, now let's look at some more. Numbers 11, 1 to 3. And the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. But, the, but it's their misfortunes. You're allowed to complain about misfortunes, right? And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some outlying parts of the camp. Now you remember in the Exodus, it looked like, you know, it, when the... When the um, Wow, the tabernacle was in the center. All the tents of the Israelites were surrounding it. And so we can imagine the very outskirts of the circle of Israelite tents. Fire breaks out and tents and people begin to burn up, literally, with fire. That's what's happening. And it's God doing it. Then the people cried out to Moses. And Moses prayed to the Lord and the fire died down. So the name of that place was called Taberah. Tabera means burning, because the fire of the Lord burned among them. Okay, so this is God killing people for complaining about what? Misfortunes that he put them in. He was the one that took them out of Egypt by the hand of Moses. Moses didn't want anything to do with it. Send someone else. I'm not eloquent. I stutter. Who makes men to speak and who creates muteness? <laughs> And so this is God doing this, and they are ultimately complaining against God. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 10, 6-11. Paul's giving us some interpretation here to the Corinthian church. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we, not, we might not desire evil as they did. Okay, so I left out 1-5. through 1-5 through five is he's talking about the Exodus. Okay, we don't have time to get into it, but he's talking about the Exodus. Do not be idolaters as some of they were. Them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. That's Exodus 32, 4. We must not indulge. That was the, um, uh, the, the idolatry. Okay, that was the golden calf incident. We must not indulge in sexual immorality if some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. Numbers 25, 9. That was the, the, the women prostitutes. And God was like, death, <laughs> death. Okay? You can read it for yourself. It's in Numbers 25, 9. 
we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. You remember that story, right? Just as the Son of Man must be lifted up like Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness. Remember the bronze snake was the, the healing that the Israelites must look upon to be healed from the venom. It was a, it was a death plague. Nor, verse 10, here it is, grumble. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. That's a destroyer angel. So God sends an angel to kill the grumblers. You can read about that in Numbers 16, 41 to 50. Now look at this, verse 11, friends. This is why I'm doing this to us, us, me too. Now these things happen to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Now you remember in Acts 2, uh, Joel's prophecy was said to be fulfilled and it was the last days. This was at Pentecost 2,000 years ago. That's what it means by the end of the age has come. We are in the last days. We are in the end of the age right now as I'm preaching. Okay? Jesus could come back physically any moment. Nothing more needs to happen. Except that God is patient, that none of his own should perish, but that all of them should come to repentance. So you could see here, Paul's instructing the Corinthians through the Exodus story, and he just pulls some examples out. And he's like, these were written for you, Corinthians, so that you can learn and not do what they did because the consequences were great, great. Exodus 16.8. So back to this text. This is the one that I think is most important for us. And Moses said, when the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat, he's talking about the quail that God's going to send. He's going to send a strong wind from the ocean. It's going to rain hail or, or quail. It's going to, not, not the plagues, but quail. It's going to rain quail down for them because they complained, we have no meat, we have no meat, we're hungry for meat. Okay? And, and you'll get the meat and you'll get the bread. The bread was talking about the manna, the dew that would appear on the desert floor and it would crystallize in some way, turn into this nutritious honey-like wafer that they could crush up into flour and make cakes and use it as spice and all, all kinds of things that they used it for. Because the Lord has heard your grumbling, that you grumble against him. What are we, Moses and Aaron, that your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Okay, so we need to see this in light of our Philippians text. Okay, our Philippians text said, do all things, whatever it is, without grumbling or complaining. The word is disputing, but disputing means quarreling and fighting. Okay, so God wants Christians to do everything they do with no complaining, with no grumbling, and with no disputing with each other or other church members. And we read a text like that and we're like, impossible, I can't do this. That's the point. Right? The point is condemnation. The point is we can't do this. The law always condemns, friends. The law can never save you. There's not one of us who can raise our hand and say, I got that verse. Philippians 2.14, mine. No, it condemns every one of us, yet this is the will of the Lord. This is how he expects us to live. And so I, I ask the question when reading this text, all right, I can explain it, I can show and condemn everyone, including myself, but here's what I think is better. Wouldn't it be nice if we had some help? Like, 
some help to not grumble, not fight, not quarrel with each other. Wouldn't that be nice? Okay, so here's one way. There's many ways. This is one method of not quarreling or complaining. One method I'm giving you. And that method is you must understand the sovereignty of God and His providential care for you. If you don't have good theology in the realm of God's sovereignty and His providential care, then I don't think you can go through life without complaining and disputing and fighting with each other. Okay? So, here is a fascinating and helpful uh, definition of God's providential sovereignty. It's from Easton's Bible Dictionary. Providence literally means foresight, but it is generally used to denote God's preserving and governing all things. Notice the all things. Just like do all things without complaining by means of secondary causes. Now, we, causality is a fascinating um, philosophical and theological category, okay? Very simply, here's secondary causes. God is the ultimate energy that energizes all things. Without Him, nothing exists. In Him, Jesus, we live and move and have our being. Okay? Nothing exists outside of God's energizing, not even Satan and demons. Hell itself would dissolve into nothingness unless God was keeping it flaming. Right? Okay. So that means that God is providentially upholding all things. Hebrews 1 says of Jesus that he upholds the universe by the word of his power. This is the first cause of all things. What's the first cause? Who's ultimately responsible? God. God. Secondary causes, that's willing agents making choices. That's you and me. But you must know and understand that nothing happens outside of God's allowing it. And if he didn't want it to happen, trust me, it would not happen, whatever it is. Including Adam and Eve eating the fruit that he said not to eat. You remember, he could have not put the fruit there in the first place. He could have not gave the command. And so it was part of his ultimate providential plan for his glory and ultimately for our good. So let's look at some texts, okay? Here's how you can fight murmuring and complaining. These texts that I'm going to show you now will be a help to you. It will help you to see that God is purposeful in whatever is happening in your world. Whatever is happening in your world. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Psalm 135, 5-7. For I know that the Lord is great and that our Lord is above all gods. Notice the small g. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does. In heaven and on earth, in the seas and all deeps. He it is who makes the clouds rise at the end of the earth, who makes lightnings for the rain and brings forth the wind from his storehouses. Psalm 33, 13 to 17. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of men. Notice the all. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all. Notice the all, all, all. And observes all their deeds. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation. And by its great might, it cannot rescue. 
In other words, God says all human effort and energy and technology and might can't do anything unless God wills. Psalm 127, 1 and 2, two of my favorite verses in the Bible. They've helped me. Unless the Lord builds the house, the builders build in vain. Okay? Unless the Lord builds the house, the builders build in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchmen watch in vain. Meaning, it's ultimately up to God to either save a city or have a city destroyed. The Proverbs tell us that uh, the, the king's heart is a water stream in his hand. He turns it wherever he wills. The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. And you remember, the, the lot was the Old Testament way of finding out what God wants. We can think of it as dice. They cast lots for Jesus' unseamed inner garment, the last thing that he owned, that the Roman soldier was like, I want it, valuable, let's cast lots for it. You know, Jonah was thrown over the the boat uh, to calm the storm uh, by casting lots or, or drawing straws. And, and Proverbs 16 amazingly says that the lot is cast, but every decision that the lot makes is from the Lord. I mean, that's astounding. Now, there's more text. Let's, let's just do some more before I comment. Psalm 115.3, our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. Proverbs 21, 30 to 31, no wisdom, no understanding, no counsel can avail against the Lord. The horse is made ready for the day of battle, but the victory belongs to the Lord. Matthew 10, 28 to 31, and do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. So that's an admonition and a help for us that we shouldn't fear people. We should fear God and not people. Right? Because who can kill the soul? Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Now, this is Jesus speaking. Okay? Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Now, that, now that text there in, in 1028, we, we look at that discouragingly. But this is Jesus seeking to encourage his people. Because we know he's seeking to encourage and help them not to be afraid because of verse 29, 30, and 31. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. In other words, birds don't drop out of the sky and die unless God says, you, 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 you. I mean, that's what it says. God is so involved in his creation that birds that are seemingly worthless don't even perish without God willing it. And he gets even deeper. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. So, so therefore points to what he just said. So, so if that's the case, that not even sparrows can be hurt without God's providential willing it, and if all the hairs of your head are numbered, I mean, I live with three girls. And you know what's always in the drain and always in the hairbrush? Love you. Hair. Okay. So, so hair is being lost all the time. And God's like, at any moment, any second, I know how many. And you just brushed out 200, you know? I don't even want to ask him if he knows how many hairs are on all the pets in the world. Right? Especially in shedding season but I assume that he does, okay? He has to. 
So the result of this knowledge, this understanding, look, friends, is fear not. The reason Jesus told us this information is that we would not be afraid. And often, I I tell you, our complaining has a lot to do with us being afraid. We're anxious because we're afraid. We're stressed because we're afraid. And so we, we complain. Fear not, therefore, you are more of more value than many sparrows. Many sparrows. You're way more valuable than the birds of the air, the fish of the sea, the beasts of the earth. You were created in my image. How about Romans 11, 33 to 36? Oh, the depth. Now, now before I read this, you got to know what just happened here in 9 through uh, the end of 11 here. So in 9, 10, and 11 of Romans, Paul is um, showing these Roman Christians God's mysterious and unscrutable plan to save the Jews in a very roundabout way. He would save the Jews by sending the Messiah to the Jews who would reject him, and then he would save a massive amount of Gentiles. And when the last Gentile was brought in, then he would turn to Israel because of the jealousy that the Gentiles got in on the Jewish Messiah, they would turn back to Jesus and be saved. And we're like, why would you do it that way? We just read 9, 10, and 11 together, and you're like, that is the weirdest way to accomplish the saving of the Jews that you could have chosen. And then in a response to that, Paul says, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. We say, that's foolish. Paul says, no, that's wisdom and knowledge. How unsearchable are his judgments and how unscrutable his ways. One translation says, his ways past finding out. Like we often ask the question, especially in the middle of hard, is God, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? And, and this text is telling you can't unscramble it ahead of time. Right? Often looking back, we're like, oh, okay. If that would have happened, then this couldn't have happened. And because that happened, these things happen. And in the moment, we're just like, why? Why is this happening? And we murmur and complain and gripe, and God's like, you realize that's against me. Because I'm the one doing this. I'm the one who's put you here through secondary causes. I'm the one who will get you out in my time. Okay? Now, now, now I'm saying this to me too. I need to hear this. This will help me in the middle of the hard and the trial and the suffering. And I could say, all right, this is of God. How can I complain against him? He has good purposes in this. And then as the inner lawyer starts arguing with your your preaching to yourself, you can say, God works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. All things. So this very thing that I want out of now, God is up to something in it, and he's working it for my ultimate good. That doesn't mean the thing itself is good. Often it's very bad. And if it's done by someone else to us, it will be judged. And so we can leave the just judgment of God up to him, and we can cling to him. But realize that whatever you're in, and it's different for all of us, and we're in it all together. might look different, but we're in it. It's of God. And it might be of God by letting you make terrible choices that have got you where you are. Secondary causes. 
Because he wants to teach you something. He wants you to cling to him. He wants you to not rely on self. He wants you to see how weak you actually are. In other words, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. That in due time, he might lift you up. Okay? Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Now, now, now we don't pray and counsel God. You realize that, right? All right, God, I need you to do this. Would you please do this? And he's like, oh, thank you. I, I had no idea what to do. And you, by your prayer, just helped me tremendously. That's not what prayer does. Okay? Prayer gets us in line with God's will, not the other way around. We don't get God in line with our will by prayer. That's a, that's a whack view of prayer, okay? Now, we can rest our souls in the will of God through prayer. And certainly, we're invited to make requests. Knock and the door will open. Seek and you'll find. Ask and you'll receive. You have not because you ask not. But listen, you are not counseling God with your prayers. Right? Right. Who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? No one can say, God, you owe me. Why? Because from him and through him and to him are all things, all things, even whatever you're in right now, all things. For what? To him be the glory forever and ever. He is, listen friends, God is wise beyond your wildest imagination. His omniscience, omni means all, science means knowing. His all-knowingness literally can fathom Every decision you will make in your life, and you will make billions upon billions of decisions, he knows all of the outworkings of every one of your decisions, times it by the seven or eight billion people on the globe right now. All of its interconnectedness, he is wise to know who should decide what the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. To keep history going exactly the way he wants it. This is our God. And this should enable you, friends, listen, the knowledge of God's providential sovereignty should land on you in the moment of hard and say, all right, God, you have not abandoned me. You have not forsaken me. Rather, you are in this with me. And by secondary causes, you have brought me to this place. Philip Moore, the uh, Acts 29 director of France, has five ways that we suffer. I've, I've pulled this up in a previous sermon. Uh, number one is just suffering. This is you're an idiot and you're suffering because you're an idiot. You, you, you overspend and now you're suffering because of it. You mouthed off to your wife and now you're suffering for it. You drove the car on E and now you're broke down. It's just. No one should complain ever about just suffering. It's your fault. Unjust suffering. That I can understand why people complain about. Things that you did nothing to deserve. And listen, I've been tempted to rage against God. I will lay my heart bare before you and say, there, is, there has been times, and I know there will be more times, where I am tempted to not just complain against God and murmur against God and grumble against God, but to fist to the heavens. How could you do this to me? How about you? You been there? And how merciful is our God to know we are children and finite and made of dust? How merciful is our God? Just suffering, unjust suffering. 
Um, the third is normal suffering. This is just the suffering that everyone goes through. You know, you wake up in the morning because you slept weird on your neck, and now you got to turn like this. Right? That's normal. Everyone has that happen. Okay? It's, it's ibuprofen time. Okay? Normal suffering. You, you, you know, you're, you're digging a ditch in your yard to put up a wall, and blisters are all over your hands. Normal, everybody goes through this. Okay? Normal suffering. Abnormal suffering. Now, abnormal suffering is hard. We're talking earthquakes and tornadoes and tsunamis. and I mean, We complain about that. But remember in Exodus and in Psalms, the wind is God's, the lightning is God's. It's all his, friends. Satan does not control the wind and the waves and the earth. Only if God allows him to have some of that kind of power. Like in Job, when the lightning fell from heaven and burnt up his children. It was God allowing, enabling Satan to have some power over nature, but not outside of God's sovereign purposes and control. Okay, so just, unjust, normal, unnormal, and then the fifth is suffering for the sake of Christ, which many of us know nothing about. It's persecution, it's standing up for God and being ridiculed for it. It's, now we're not talking about you being an idiot and being rude and being contentious and someone not liking you. That's not it. Okay? We're talking about you're humble and gracious and caring for people and you're a Christian and you seek others good and welfare by them coming to know Jesus and they put you in prison like Paul as he's writing from prison in Philippians. Okay? So I, I, I know quite a few of those categories of suffering. And I just want to say that we are tempted when suffering to complain against God, aren't we? And if we have a sovereign view of God, we do get tempted to say, how could you do this to me? How could you do this to me? First Peter 4, 9, this word grumbling, we're still on grumbling. I told you it was going to take a while. This is the same word grumbling and quarreling there in 1 Timothy 2, 8. Peter says, show hospitality to one another, speaking to the Christians without grumbling. I love that. So, so you being hospitable to other Christians will be an opportunity for grumbling. What does that mean? That means that other Christians will most definitely get on your nerves and be an occasion for complaining and grumbling because we are sinners in need of a Savior even Christians, right? means you will step on each other's toes, you will annoy each other, you will backbite, you will stab each other in the back. And, and Paul, Peter here is saying, do it without grumbling. Do it without grumbling. And that's included in the all things, isn't it? Hospitality without grumbling. First Peter, I'm sorry, First Timothy 2.8. I desire that in every place men should pray, lifting up holy hands without anger, or quarreling. Quarreling is that word, just translated quarreling. Okay, so guys, we're, we're not to be angry people. And I know that anger is the most dominant emotion for men, normally. But not for Christians. We need to rage against it. And if we are angry, angry we are not to sin in our anger. Okay, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give the devil a foothold. Okay, and we are not to be complainers murmurers, grumblers. C.S. Lewis wrote a fantastic fiction novel called The Great Divorce. How many of you have read it or listened to it? Okay, it's fiction. 
And so I, if you listen to it, which I highly recommend listening to it, I, I found it much easier to listen to than to read. Um, don't listen to it as if it's the Bible because he says some crazy stuff in there. Okay? It's a fiction book. He's using his imagination, and his imagination is going to this place. People come up from hell on a bus to visit the outskirts of heaven. And the glorified human beings come from heaven to the outskirts of heaven to try to persuade the ghosts, the damned spirits, to come into heaven. And they just argue with them and persuade and plead and do everything short of grabbing them and pulling them in. And no one wants to go. No one wants to go. It's a fascinating read. Okay? So I, I highly recommend it. This chapter 9 here that I'm pulling this one is, is about murmuring and grumbling. Okay? So there's a woman in this text, and, and um, uh, the, the narrator, who is supposed to be C.S. Lewis, is talking to his, one of his fictional hero writers, George MacDonald, and he's, George MacDonald is explaining what's going on in this place, this outer rim of heaven, if you will. And they both together hear this ghost, this woman ghost, and she's just complaining, 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 nonstop, paragraph of complaining, big paragraph. And so he responds, and he tells what's going on. Now listen to this with the potentiality of Lewis being even 50% right. 50%. The question is whether she is a grumbler or only a grumble. If there is a real woman, even the least trace of one, still there inside the grumbling, it can be brought to life again. If there's one wee spark under all those ashes, we'll blow it till the whole pile is red and clear. But if there's nothing but ashes, we'll not go on blowing them in our own eyes forever. They must be swept up. Then C.S. Lewis, the narrator, says, but how can there be a grumble without a grumbler? It begins with a grumbling mood and yourself still distinct from it perhaps criticizing it, and yourself in a dark hour may will that mood. Embrace it. Ye can repent and come out of it again, but there may come a day when you can do that no longer. Then there will be no you left to criticize the mood, nor even to enjoy it, but just the grumble itself going on forever like a machine." Now, Lewis is close to what is called in the Scriptures an eternal sin. And, and if you're characterized by this grumbling and that's allowed to continue forever, that's what he's getting at. Like you just increase in your capacity to complain and grumble and it's just allowed to grow and grow and grow forever. And you, there's no you left. You become one with the complaint and the grumble. That's what he's saying. Now, for Christians, we don't have to worry about this. But you wonder, if that's the case, wouldn't that be hell? Friends, we can choose, as we talked about last week, to attack the sin that so easily entangles us with ferociousness and the power of the Holy Spirit, or we can practice it, feed it, and let it grow on us. We have to choose. We have to will to kill our sin. 
And friends, this one gets us all the complaining, the grumbling. It's against God. Do all things without grumbling or, or disputing. Disputing means fighting. That, so this is what will happen if you do that. That you may be blameless and innocent. Children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Let's stop there. So the, the doing all things without grumbling or disputing will look like you will be blameless and innocent. You'll look like God. Like father, like children. Children of God without blemish. Now what's the context? The context is in the midst, in the middle of a crooked and twisted generation. So here's the contrast. Crooked and twisted generation, which we all came out of. We all were crooked and twisted. We live in a crooked and twisted culture. We breathe the crooked and twisted air. But when we are brought out of the culture, out of our sin, we may become blameless, innocent, without blemish. And when we are not complaining, not grumbling, not disputing with each other, we will look to outsiders who are crooked and twisted as if we are blameless, innocent, and without blemish. That's what he's saying. And look what will be the result from outsiders. Among whom you shine as lights in the world. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. No one takes a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather puts it up on a stand for all to see. This is probably a reference to stars. You know, the stars were very useful in the ancient world because they were the GPS. They were Google Maps at the time. And against a backdrop of black and no artificial light, the stars were blazing for all to see. And that's what he's saying. This dark, dark world that you live in, when you live your life without grumbling and complaining and disputing, you shine. Friends, you will be a huge, outstanding, standing out witness if you would just not complain and not quarrel. Two things that I admit are impossible without God. But yet, look at the result. And another thing that stars used to do in the ancient world was, was they guided, right? Remember the Magi, a star in the east, or a star from the east, they came and they, they sought out the Christ. They were used for navigation and guidance, and so we will have the opportunity to guide people to the true light. We are lights in the world, but we are not the light of the world, right? There's one light. And when people look at us and they're like, how, how do you live your life in the middle of terrible, without complaining, without grumbling, and rather being thankful, joyful. Like, how is that possible? It's God. It's the only way it's possible. Holding fast to the word of life. The word of life is the word of the gospel. So, so as we wrestle with our sin, remember 12 and 13, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to act according to his good pleasure. As you wrestle with your sin, especially the sin of complaining and murmuring and grumbling, you are to hold on to the gospel. That, friends, 
You will fail and fall, and you need to get back up because Jesus has already paid for all of that sin. Friends, the beautiful news is that all of your complaining from this day and back has already been paid for. Isn't that good news? The Israelites had to pay for their sin of grumbling by death. Jesus took the death that we deserve. He said, I'll step into it. They deserve judgment for sure. All their complaining, Father, ultimately against you, kill me instead. And he did. And so we hold on to the gospel for dear life as we fail and fail forward towards glory. Knowing that, friends, the promise of the gospel is one day, one day, though I complain till I die, there will be no more complaining someday. No more grumbling. Can you imagine a world without complaint and grumble? What will people post? What, what, what would we post? I mean, there's, there's nothing else to post, right? It's a joke. What would the news say? I mean, everything is complaining and grumbling in our culture. This is why if we don't, we will stand out like stars. I mean, we will just shine. Oh, God, help us. And then Paul says, holding fast to the word of life, that's the gospel, so that if you do this and if you hold on to the gospel, so that, this is what will result, in the day of Christ, now we talked about the day of Christ already in a previous sermon, it's judgment day, the day of Christ. So on judgment day, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, vain means empty. Paul's speaking of his gospel labors, his church planning efforts, his working side by side with these Philippian believers. He's like, guys, don't let go of the gospel. Don't let go of God so that on that day, I could be proud that I did not labor in vain. Prove my laboring in Philippi, my imprisonment in Philippi, my receiving lashes and beatings in Philippi, my continuing to encourage you and my desire to come see you. And if not, Timothy's coming to see you. Don't let it be in vain, guys. Don't let go of the gospel. Don't abandon Jesus in the midst of your hard times. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Now, we don't do um, drink offerings anymore. But in my previous famous movies, we would pour, you know, pour out some for the homies. Remember the 40-ounce? You remember, yeah, Menace to Society, all that, yeah. So that's not what's being talked about here, okay? What's being referenced here is a drink. You're shaking your head, but you've seen it. You know what I'm talking about. Brown paper bag, oldie. You know what I'm talking about. St. Ides. Come on. So that's not what's being talked about here, okay? What's being talked about here is referencing the very first, probably, drink offering in the Bible, which is Genesis 35, 13 to 15. God went up from him. The hymn is Jacob. In the place where he had spoken with him. And Jacob set up a pillar in that place. That means a rock, like some kind of rock remembrance. Like we set up a memorial. In the place where he had spoken with him. A pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. Here's Paul speaking the same language here to Timothy in 2 Timothy. Now remember, 2 Timothy is probably the last thing Paul wrote before he got his head chopped off by the Romans. Second imprisonment in Rome, or last imprisonment in Rome, we don't know exactly how many, but not the one where he wrote, 
Colossians, Ephesians, Philippians, Philemon. He got out probably and then got back in. And, and he's about to be executed, so he writes Timothy this last letter. And he says, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering. So he sees himself pouring out his life and work for the sake of the gospel as an offering to God. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me, there's that day again, on that day. And not only me, this is us, but also to all who have loved his appearing. That's us. Friends, the crown of righteousness means one day you will actually be righteous. And I can't wait to sin no more, to be tempted no more, to wrestle and struggle no more. No more grumbling. Like, I can't wait, friends. And this is the hope we have. So though you are plagued with grumbling and complaining and disputing now, friends, this is not how it's going to be forever. Isn't that good news? You, you hold on to the promise of the word of life. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. In other words, Paul sees his whole life as an offering to God. And if his life needs to be poured out for the sake of the Philippians' faith, he is happy. This is what I live for. And one day I will receive my reward for all of my effort for God. And then he says, likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Now, now notice the difference between 18 and 14. Grumbling, disputing, glad, rejoicing. Which one sounds better to you? I hope the second. It's what I want. Man, even in the middle of the hard, I want to be glad and rejoice. That's what I want. I want to stand in the middle of the storm and not complain. I want to stand in the middle of the fire burning everything down and not dispute and not grumble, but rather be glad and rejoice. How? Because God is sovereign God has put me in this place. He has good intentions for whatever this is that I'm in. And one day, if I hold on to the gospel, Jesus, this will all be a distant memory. And I'm saved to sin no more, the crown of righteousness. So, as we remember Jesus' work on the cross for us, his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, Let's remember that though we don't see sometimes in our lives immediate relief, which we want badly, get me out of this. And if not, I'm going to complain, complain, complain. Friends, we will get relief ultimately. It's coming. And perhaps God is building patience. Perhaps God is helping you to cling to him. Perhaps he's drawing you to himself because he knows if he just lets everything be good, you would walk away from him. He is the God of keeping or persevering, and he does it by means of trouble. And so though we are tempted to grumble and we are tempted to complain and dispute and fight with one another, especially in the middle of the suffering, let us turn from this sin that is ultimately against God. Can we work out that 
sin with fear and trembling? And, and may we rather be glad and be rejoicers. Friends, the Psalms are full of lamentations. Lament. Lament is different than, than, than grumbling and complaining. Lament is, God, I need you in this. So you're not blaming God. Rather, you're, re, you're mourning with Him in His presence. And that's my encouragement is, Lament is okay. There's a whole book in the Bible called Lamentations. Many of the Psalms are laments and they're worship songs to God. But complaining against God, that is what we should never do. And remember that complaining itself is against God. So might we lament a sinful world, a broken world? May we lament that we're not home yet. Let us not complain against the Lord our God.